I just had really bad audio quality last time, and I think it's just recording without the sticky walls. So I'm trying to see if there's anything I can do to gotcha. Better, I, I listened to, better to my audio quality. I think two episodes ago, and I had a pretty tinny voice. So th- does this sound all right? Uh, it's a little echoey. Like I wonder if talking closer is better. Talking closer and lower. Hold on, Sagan. That just sounds like ASMR. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we got that. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. We have the... OG, I guess not the OG, but the second OG crew back in studio, finally reading our assigned reading instead of gallivanting off to talk about autonomy and going to the movies, uh, all that nonsense. Uh, But here we are on the book assignment. Um, But before any of that boring stuff, uh, Sam, what are you drinking right now? I'm having a a hearty pour of Johnny Walker Red Label. Um, on ice. I'm usually a neat, the scotch neat guy, but this is um, affordable enough that I could water it down a bit, have a nice chilly drink on this uh, late summer evening. Summer's dead, Sam, and we all know this. It's dead and gone. We murdered him. The PSLs have been poured, etc. Insert Wait, rent from last year. Oh yeah, I remember you're that. right. So I need I need to use all my ice that's in the freezer before it's warm drinks for the next six months. Exactly. So you anticipate running out of ice? No, I need to run out of the oh, ice. Oh, you so want to run? Okay, it. no, I see, I see. Yeah, I need, I need to use it. So I filled up my scotch with ice um, and then didn't notice how much scotch I poured. So we'll see if the article makes any sense in 45 minutes. Okay. Uh, well, speaking of warm drinks, uh, Stephen, I think I see a mug. Do we? Is it just water or are we doing something interesting oh, this time? I have upgraded this time, boys. It's water with a tea bag in it and some honey. What's the it's tea? water hot? Yes, it is hot. I mean... <laughs> Cold tea, so I mean, cold tea. If it was initially hot and you put the tea bag in, it works fine. But just like dunking a tea bag in, bag in cold water, that's that's just not going to fly. You're not going to get anything other than like, I guess the moral equivalent of Lacroix, except with tea. I mean, Stephen, you have to consider the fact that we feel it necessary to ask you this question. Why? <laughs> why would that be the case? Look, I don't get like the one. T- I remember one time, like I was gonna just get some water or, or tea or whatever, and then actively thinking, like, no, I need to get some bourbon or some scotch or something alcoholic because I got made fun of last time, which incidentally just, mm. um, and then I I come home and I get here and I have my glass of bourbon or whatever, and then both of you guys are drinking just like water or something like that, and then you proceed to make fun of me. You know, Stevens, uh, you just can't win. But also, sorry, uh, what kind of tea was it? Oh, just raspberry tea. Raspberry tea, okay. Raspberry tea with honey is a great combination. I will stand by that till the day I die. Honey, hmm. in general, I've I've warmed up to it. Oh my gosh, it's so good in coffee, in tea, in alcohol. Mead, guys, mead. Okay. Mead with a D, just for the record, because everyone thinks I'm saying meat. It's mead. I don't think I've actually had raspberry tea with honey, so maybe I'll, I'll have to to look for that next time I'm I'm out and about. Uh, but as for myself, I am double fisting, as it were. We got our nice uh, grapefruit knockoff Lacroix from Wegmans, and our homebrewed beer from more than a year ago, uh, from 13 months ago. That is still tasty, and if and it doesn't explode too badly when I open it, so I I, I count that. As a win. Uh, but you know what else wins, or at least one triumphed, one could say? Uh, and that's the erotic. And that's the first chapter that we're looking at uh, from Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Chapter 8, The Triumph of the Erotic. And Stephen, I just can't wait for you to tell me all about this. Oh, I will tell you all about the erotic. Uh, just, you know, take a seat. Um, so in this chapter, Truman... Uh, comments that the erotic has really successfully fused itself to mainstream culture in a way that isn't necessarily reminiscent of previous civilizations. Um, and he notes that this has been done without kind of the mainstream reading these theor- theorists like Reich or Marcuse. But within a short amount of time, and we were talking about 40 or 50 years, 
Um, back in the day, the Rolling Stones were forbidden from appearing on a talk show until they changed their lyrics, let's spend the night together to let's spend some time together. And I mean, if we look at current pop culture, even kind of stuff that's supposedly for general consumption on late night talk shows, I mean, that is that is very moderate, very tame. Um, and he's curious on how this happened. And of course, he comments that this is far too broad a topic to tackle in just one chapter. He briefly comments about breakdown of social hierarchies, two world wars, technology such as the pill, safe abortion, easy and innocuous access to pornography. All of these things kind of contributed to this, this shift, this kind of radical shift of the West from the kind of what we would perhaps now, and he'll comment on later, we would perhaps now consider prudish to downright kind of licentious. But he wants, those are those are more uh, practical or, or kind of concrete moves, and he wants to explore the more theoretical groundwork for the shift to happen. And he attributes this uh, kind of theoretical groundwork to two main streams of thought, that of surrealism and porn pornography. I suppose not two streams of thought, but kind of two vectors into the kind of social imaginary. So we'll briefly discuss, I suppose, surrealism. And he notes that art has always been pushing the bounds of sexuality. He already riffed on Percy B. Shelley. This is not anything new, but he primarily works with the philosopher Augusto del Noche. Sorry if I butchered that. And this philosopher pinpoints surrealism as of vital importance to what he phrases as the ascendance of eroticism. And it's important to note that surrealism didn't just stick around in kind of modern art galleries where kind of posh theoretical artists or what have you would go in, spout some talking points and go home. No, this like surrealism jumped to the everyday. Uh, for example, paintings of Salvador Dali hang in many people's houses. Admittedly, I had to Google him, but the minute I Googled him, I, I recognized some of his stuff. Um, it has kind of made its way into the social imaginary. And surrealism, he notes, is very occupied with Freud. It views itself as the artistic embodiment of Freud's psychology. Um, most of these artists, uh, kind of taken with surrealism, were fascinated with the land of dreams and attributed to this land the very meaning of human existence. Uh, they, they would say something to the effect of the unconscious is the guide to truth. And this is particularly epitomized in Hitchcock's Spellbound, in which the protagonist recalls a dream that enables him to solve a murder. Um, Hitchcock taking a note from surrealism, saying that dream is the way to truth, or kind of the unconscious, as it were. Well, one of the interesting moves, and frankly, one of the more disgusting moves that they made, was the revitalization of the Marquis de Sade, where we get the word sadism. And, whew, this guy, uh, he makes Foucault look like a prude, and uh, Foucault was, unsurprisingly, a fan. But basically, he took kind of sexual, I, a few words come to mind other than degeneracy to a new extreme. Um, he was very preoccupied with kind of pushing sexual bounds to the point of violence, hence the name sadism, um, and and was also quite preoccupied with blurring the kind of religi religious profane bar uh, barrier with the sexual. Um, very odd man, and very, I suppose, not surprising that they would hail him as kind of one of their prophets, but I suppose I still just find it difficult to imagine why anyone would, would want to associate with him. Uh, in any case, this took a decidedly political tone as um, the kind of the new left, uh, the, the neo-Marxists uh, kind of would take Freud and marry it to Marxism, so the Surrealists did. Uh, the Marquis de Sade and Freud were both listed as important in the speech to the Congress of Writers, uh, one of the Surrealists Brit Breton gave that, but he also li listed Marx and Lenin as equally important. And the overall thrust of this is that art is not only it's supposed to describe the world according to the surrealists, but it's to shape it. Freud is not only offering therapeutic advice to them, but political tools. Um, in sum, surrealism married Freud with Marx and gave it artistic fangs that sank not only into the, the elites, but also into middle-class suburbia. Now the erotic could clothe itself with a sort of sophistication. And we'll see that sophistication take the form of pornography, which will be attacking it from the complete other side. So we see kind of top-down surrealism, the elite to the lower, now we're going to see kind of the more um, muddled or uh, kind of I, what would normally be considered lower class of porn raised up to the middle or even high class. And this move was done in a 
bit of admitted brilliance by Hugh Hefner. He brought pornography from the shameful to the sophisticated. The, the running joke, I only read it for the articles, Truman comments, it was funny because it's actually kind of plausible, even though obviously it's patently false. One gets to kind of talk about politics and culture while looking at pictures of beautiful naked women, which links the erotic with sophistication, much like the surrealists aimed to accomplish, except doing it from the exact opposite direction. Um, the social stigma, in essence, was removed in no small part due to Hugh Hefner and Playboy. Um, he, I, I, it's interesting. So on a side note, a bit of a meta note, I've been primarily listening to Carl Truman. I, most of my experience with uh, quote-unquote reading him has been an audiobook. And that audiobook doesn't include footnotes. So when I start paging through the audio or paging through the actual book to kind of write up notes for this, I can see all the footnotes. <clears throat> and he has a very interesting one, uh, quoting Gail Dines, saying that today there is almost no softcore porn on the internet because most of it has migrated to pop culture. And I think that this is undoubtedly true. If you look at films from the 50s and 60s, some of them get a little risque, but honestly, nothing compared to what we have now. I mean, it's difficult to imagine something like Game of Thrones being allowed 50 years ago. It's just, I mean, it is, in essence, softcore porn. Um, on the whole, like that shows what a remarkable job Hugh Hefner, and I suppose that all, kind of Hugh Hefner is the uh, primary symbol that Truman uses, but others, of course, were joining him in this project. But this is the epitome of the idea of sex sells. Truman launches into a bit of uh, a feminist criticism of pornography, citing a number of uh, feminists, um, most of whom are obviously criticizing pornography for its, you know, its debilitating effect on women, or rather its distortion of the imagination of society towards women. Um, surprisingly, a few defend it, uh, pretty much on the basis that autonomy and consent is the highest good, even though, nota bene, consent in porn is suspect at best, and much of it is ostensibly nothing less than filmed rape. Uh, he goes on to comment that porn abstractifies sex and makes it about the consumer rather than two individuals with both their own wants and needs, and again launches into a feminist criticism uh, via Mona Sharon, who points out that porn is obviously dehumanizing to women. Um, but it's also subtly dehumanizing to men. Uh, what happens when sex is commodified as such? Such consumers of porn are dehumanized and made base. They're made lesser. So really, even though the most obvious effect of porn is the dehumanization of women, it is more subtly also dehumanizing towards men. And incidentally, uh, <laughs> David Foster Wallace uh, delivers a devastating criticism along these lines, um, along with, well, along these lines, as well as other lines of attack uh, in his excellent article, Big Red Sun. So all of this kind of to wrap up, the sexual mores have now been attacked on multiple fronts. The new left on the political front with their propaganda arm was covered in the previous chapter. The surrealists have been attacking these mores as downright uh, unhealthy, violent, repressive, and therefore oppressive. So the surrealists and the new left have kind of formed this alliance and they're attacking it as oppressive for using this very theoretical armchair philosophy, art gallery, theorizing, um, kind of, I would phrase as top down. But mainstream culture, having fully accepted softcore porn in, form, in the form of ever increasingly explicit sex scenes in movies and shows, and tacitly accepting hardcore porn in the form of throwaway comments such as assuming everyone does it, and in so doing, it assaults any sort of sexual more as laughable. It's the killjoy at the party that demands everyone behave when everyone else just wants to have a good time. And so we see this very interesting attack on social mores, both from the armchair theory, but also from the mainstream pop culture. And that, I would say, is the basic summary of uh, of chapter eight. I tried to, tried to keep it brief, Brian. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. I think the part of it that was most interesting to me in this chapter is not the pornography part, because that seems sort of obvious and sort of, you know, this gradual chipping away of like what's appropriate in the public square, various, you know, legal decisions that have made it harder and harder to sort of, you know, enforce like a, a collective social line on what's acceptable expression, you know, what's speech and not just obscenity. The part that is very interesting and just something that, you know, were I to have all the time in the world, I would want to in investigate much further is the surrealism side of it. Because that's one where I would not immediately associate this surrealism, that is, with the radicalism that he does. Because the, to me, surrealism, 
before this book is just oh yeah it's you know people with clock faces flying with umbrellas or something whatever that that or with apple heads you know flying with umbrellas the classic surrealist photos but what but what he does show i think which is very interesting is just the the normalizing of the idea that the unconscious is truth and that dreams can be treated as serious subjects of discourse and then that the way that that also ties into the freudian whether explicitly or not is just sort of a little feedback loop where you start to dissolve the constraints of reality it, it instead becomes your subconscious which then really just becomes your desires your wills your expressive individualism in the end it's a it's a it's a permission structure that's created uh by the art which is interesting i okay so i don't know much about freud and i i tremble saying that because that's also the sentence everyone says about quantum physics now i don't know much about quantum physics which is almost a guarantee that they're going to be wrong (laughs) same with freud i have to imagine but from what i understand of him he was careful not to just say that repression is ipso facto bad. Um, there is a healthy amount of repression. That's how society is formed. There is also a healthy amount of uh, lack of repression, uh, of, of letting yourself go. And so he would, in fairness, probably say of the monk or the nun, no, you're overly repressed. You should be allowing yourself to kind of give into your urges. But he would also probably say of the Marquis de Sade or... Um, I don't know, uh, what's the famous opera? Don something or other. Don, I don't know, whatever the profligate was, um, who just goes running around, sleeping around with everything that moves. Um, He would also probably say, no, that person is not repressed enough. It would be better for them to start repressing themselves. Whereas this feedback loop seems to be more misunderstanding Freud, if I'm understanding him correctly, and saying, no, repression in general is bad. You shouldn't be repressed. Just go do whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... (coughs) Excuse me. I think that's fair. I mean, the repression, you also connect that back to Rousseau, right? Who admits like, yeah, we we want to do these things, but like there's going to be some op- repression of society, like necessary living society. And so the best we can do is have society like repress us into freedom, basically. And that's what Freud's building from. I think I made this comment about a year ago, year and a half ago, where the, uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art was having a surrealist exhibit. Um, and we were just there seeing other works. Um, we decided to go to the exhibit. And I, previous to this, had not minded surrealism necessarily. Um, I, there are some pieces that I actually would say I enjoy, especially surrealism from the um, 70s, 60s and 70s. There are a couple of pieces I really like. Um, but the exhibit was marked with like oppressive darkness. Um, the art was interesting, but as we walked through it, it just got darker and darker, like physically, and the space felt more claustrophobic. Um, and in the biographies of the artists, there was a recurring motif that they all eventually descended into madness and obsession with the occult. It was really eerie. And like, you know, the pieces I, I look at, pieces like that's an interesting concept. I like what they're playing with there. And then see that they would just take that leagues farther and commit these terrible crimes and eventually go mad. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's a lot more there about the darkness implicit in surrealism and how it gives permissions to our worst, our absolute worst sides, um, unfortunately. Salvador Dali is interesting, too, because he had a midlife conversion to Catholicism or re-conversion, re, um, I guess. He grew up in Spain. But um, I mean, he he struggled with that, but had a deep fascination and love of the mystical elements of the faith. And he held that alongside painting some of his most famous works, which is which is interesting. Um, I'm not sure what to make of that, but he's an interesting character. There, there is something to be said for, I don't know, the, there is a darkness in humanity. I think this is something that most people, both religious and not religious, kind of across the board will generally agree with that. Like, yeah, human, humans are capable of some pretty messed up stuff. And art, it's frustrating because art in some ways should be able to communicate this in such a way that is helpful and kind of helps us wrestle with this darkness. But it does seem that the surrealists are somewhat more wanting to push that boundary in that they want to stare at, maybe they wouldn't term it as darkness, but I think us three would probably term it as like, no, this is the stuff that you should probably keep at least somewhat at arm's length. And unsurprisingly, the more you stare at it, well, you know, we all know the Nietzsche quote. No, I was trying to find some tweet that I saw a while ago that's like, oh, like lists like three or four favorite, uh, these famous like 
thinkers and writers. Like, I'll try to recreate religion or, like, commune with the divine separate from Christianity, and all of them went crazy. Coincidence? Anyway. Uh, but I can't I can't find it. It, it was a compelling uh, uh, shitpost, but I do not remember what it... I can't remember the phrasing, I mean, so I can't find something, it. Something, something, Walker Percy problem of re-entry with the artist, although his problem of re-entry is more the artist having transcended and seen something great and then having to re-enter the mundane world, where this almost seems the opposite problem. It's more the problem of they can't get back. They want to get back, but can't get back. Um, the problem with descent rather than re-entry, I suppose. So all of these things bubbling up, uh, he also sees bubbling up in a slightly different direction, although, of course, all boiling down to the expressive individualism that's sort of the core of, of his thesis. And so chapter nine is the triumph of the therapeutic, and I'll try and summarize it uh, relatively quickly. But in, in this chapter, he's looking at Expressive individualism in the public square as manifested as therapeutic shifts in society. And he sees this in three different areas. Uh, the courts, uh, sort of like elite thought, Ivy League universities, and then classrooms. So the students, the leaders of, of tomorrow. Uh, the one that he spends most of his time on is the courts. And he lists a number of cases that have landmark cases that have had huge effects and changes on society. Uh, obviously, you know, Roe v. Wade, uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, Obergefell, a whole number of cases that we sort of think of as um, cases that represented a shift uh, in the direction of the country. But his case is less that any of these in particular is actually a rupture in the, in the established order, but more a uh, sort of a manifesting confirmation of the shift that is underlying it in society that it's it's instrumental of the larger changes that are already happening the groundwork was already set society is just sort of moved along by expressive individualism and the results of these court cases are just you know by being on the right side of history they're confirming that movement uh the one that he focuses on that's sort of a, a theme for framing the rest of them is Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which, you know, has the infamous legendary quote from Anthony Kennedy talking about um, how uh, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under, under the compulsion of the state, end quote, uh, which, of course, is patently untrue if you test it for more than two seconds. Piece of philosophy. It's rubbish. But said as a piece of expressive individualism, as a statement of, you know, I'm just doing my own thing, man, it's quite hard to refute. And the reason that he says this is the case is because it vibes with the cultural ethical framework that we've inherited, that is the Sittlichkeit, or however you're supposed to pronounce German. I would also note, just to call back briefly to our conversation with, with Allison a couple episodes ago, the, pre, the preceding sentence is talks specifically about, you know, how the content of the case is pertaining to personal dignity and autonomy, which are central to the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment. So there we see those those concepts intimately tied uh, in, into this larger conversation that we're having. So then he goes through some more cases, and the large point that he gets at is just that there is a flip-flopping of reasoning of whether precedent should be upheld or not, whether the public sentiment should be respected or not. It goes both ways, but the end result, the consequence is always in the same direction, a confirmation of expressive individualism as a public ideology, of the therapeutic interpretation of that. As a result of that, public policy begins to be shaped by this therapeutic mindset, wherein restriction, or a perceived restriction, is seen as animus on face value. And more specifically, it's seen as an, an irrational animus. To call back to McIntyre, as, as, as he does, it becomes emotivism. My enemies just have irrational phobias or opinions that are not based in fact, but merely in their prejudice or their preferences. But me, of course, I'm very rational and reasoned and the acceptable, uh, you know, within the acceptable uh, bounds of discourse. Rational judgment is then, you know, judged in reference to the cultural zeitgeist, the Sitlikite, without reference to other things. And here he gets into, you know, the potential for things like polygamy, uh, 
and other things that are sort of slowly making their way into mainstream acceptance by this same logic. The outcomes of all of this is simply that things become more and more therapeutic, more and more protective of individual autonomy and self-expression at the expense of any public common standards or common rules. No matter what the reasoning used, even if it uses rather traditional sounding language, it's actually just hollowed out and redefined to mean something in entirely different. All of the previous institutions, all of the previous definitions are changed to accommodate the new regime. And his sort of amusing likening of, of this hollowing out of, of languages, if one were to say, uh, democracy is the core of our society and very important to everything that we do, and then immediately follow that by saying that, therefore, it follows, you know, that cats and dogs should all get to vote too. It's that sort of redefinition, leaving out key parts of it that he sees as what's happening. The second place where he sees this rise of the therapeutic, the protection of the expressive individual is in Peter Singer, uh, who we will talk about a little bit later in the article, uh, who he sees as representative of a strand of, of Ivy League thought. I actually found this part relatively unconvincing. Peter Singer has always been kind of a fringe figure. And like in the sense that he represents a consistent point of view, he's he's interesting. But But, but his argument is just that he takes this arguments about the requirements of consciousness and autonomy for personhood to the extreme and sort of embodies that. And if people were to take um, sort of where expressive individualism leads seriously, they would maybe end up somewhere closer to him. The final point that he talks about is what he calls the campus anti-culture. Uh, and here he cites a particular instance with Charles Murray and students uh, protesting his visit and saying that, you know, free speech is an assault on them. And his point here is pretty succinct, but quite uh, elucidating, which is to say, if your personhood is located in your self-expression, then assault necessarily becomes psychological. That is the avenue by which you are attacked, and that is his argument that has been the reinterpretation of free speech. You know, uh, silence is violence, or, you know, uh, speech is violence as, as well. This all coincides. All of these three things come together with into what he sort of bemoans the state of history, that we have amnesia, very short-term memory, that we've moved from mastery of subjects, from submitting ourselves to disciplines, to expression. It's assert, uh, in the case of the academy, it becomes assertive preferences disguised in uh, flimsy academic robes, he says. And there's a rejection of history on all fronts, whether it's the actual content of the language, the traditions and laws that previously were upheld. All of it is left behind memory hold as, as quickly as possible uh, to make way for the expressive individual in the public sphere and any place where the expressive individual comes into conflict with something that would impede his freedom uh, that has to be expunged from public life. And that is where he leaves us at the end of chapter nine in a very exciting place indeed. So I guess one thought on the campus anti-culture. So I, I was thinking about this on my, my ride back home, and I do agree with Truman. I don't like the idea of assault is psychological or psych the psychological is assault. If I say, I don't like what you're doing, I'm saying, I don't like you, slash, I disapprove of you, slash, I, it, it just kind of goes to ever-increasing extremes. Um, the common statement of, um, for you to withhold transgender surgery for or transition surgery for your child, that it is in essence committing, I, I believe the term is gender or uh, sorry, um, transgender uh, uh, genocide. Um, that that's oftentimes the line that's brought brought up, and I so obviously I am I'm not a fan of that sort of line of reasoning. I think that short circuits dialogue. However, there is. So there's there's a kernel here that I, I have difficult time taking issue with in that, for example, if I went to the you know local ethics conference and I said, you know what, I just think we should kill all the midgets. I just think we should. That's my opinion. And I, I think there would be a goodly amount of people who would rightfully so say, hey, um, no, that's not cool. No, you don't get you don't get to just start calling for the murder of people and i say well whoa 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 hey this is free discussion of ideas 
come on, we're just we're just tossing back and forth ideas. I want to kill all midgets. What's what's wrong with that? I and that's where I become at least moderately sympathetic with. I think um, one of the uh, kind of like the hierarchies of violence, which start at something like you know passivity where the silence is violence and then no you're just saying things that are slightly racist or slightly sexist or slightly homophobic or what have you too maybe you're treating those people poorly too maybe you're like physically intimidating to you are assaulting to you are murdering to your mass murdering like there's kind of the hierarchy of violence and while i want to completely reject the psychological content of that i can't in entirely good faith do that and so i'm wondering what your guys's thoughts around that kind of issue are I think there are there are two interesting ways that you can take this. I think one angle is going to be, you know, the classical liberal Western style democracy, or at least until recently Western style democracy take, which is to say that we allow free speech to, you know, safely contain and work out these ideas. And we reject that notion completely uh, with obvious, you know, exceptions for direct threats, inciting violence. Those have always been part and parcel of of what's not allowed so you know directly advocating the murder uh you might need to frame it differently uh but you you probably couldn't directly say that but you might be able to to get to that end theoretically and debate it in the public square uh with with you know the everyone should have the correct reaction of you know horror and revulsion but i i think the classical liberal um within the limits of not violating other people's fundamental uh, negative rights, which I suppose murdering them would be, so that might be outside the realm of, of uh, allowability. But anyway, all that being said, there is the classical liberal take, which is just, you know, very strong on freedom of speech, uh, and then would make the clarification sort of in, in the defense of the campus, or sorry, against the campus students, that they are vastly, vastly conflating, you know, uh, like it's to be sympathetic with them on the grounds that you're making, a classical liberal would say you would have to basically turn your brain off and stop being able to make distinctions between types of speech. Like the only way in which you in, in which what you that makes sense that they have a point is in the world in which you cannot tell what speech is like. There is no ability to discern between acceptable and un, and unacceptable speech. The second angle to take at it, which is maybe the more interesting one is something closer to a, you know, conservative or society for the good angle in which you say, you know, good speech is allowed. Things that point us towards the the good or are tangential enough uh, to it, thus it can be debated should be allowed. But things that are obviously shifting us to worse things should uh, very clearly not be allowed. And here we get into things like obscenity or pornography, obviously not helpful speech, like no reason why it shouldn't just be banned. That strikes me as uh, somewhat related to um, the, oh, I forget what the, the laws back in the 30s and 40s were around movies, but um, and general decency laws. The Hayes Code. Sorry? The Hayes Code? The Hayes Code, thank you, yes. Um, and the one judge's comment on what's the difference between you know porn and art or what have you, just like, well, I'll know when I see it. And it just led to a bunch of judges having to watch porn all day. Um, so, like, I... It, which is kind of an amusing story, but it does denote some sort of issue with your the the first kind of repair in that I agree with you. Anyone in good faith would see my advocating of genocide of any particular group, or if we want to get less spicy, just like let's say I wanted to kill all people named Brevin. Um, much more understandable, obviously. Um, <laughs> I I think um, I feel attacked. Yeah, well, understandably so. Oh, what? You're just psychological. You're conflating the psychological with the physical. I'm not attacked. I'm just tossing back and forth. Brevin, are you saying are you saying that words have violence here, or words are violence? And Sam, I'm not defending you. Silence is violence. I bet. Violence is violence, I'm not yeah. schism as I shrink into a corn cob. Anyway, um, but there, <laughs> uh, there does strike me as kind of a similar line in that. Yes, most reasonable, good faith people are going to be able to tell the line between something that is actually inciting violence. Me saying, I wish to murder people is obviously inciting violence. Me saying, hey, I don't think that such and such is an idea. Or I think um, the one individual you brought up on campus pretty much saying, hey, IQ may have something to do with poverty levels or something like that, which is an interesting idea, may or may not be false, but it's clearly different than advocating wholesale slaughter. Um, 
The problem is when you get people in bad faith. And I think that's where things become very difficult to legislate. And I think that's where things begin breaking down. Well, we were getting here. I mean, something that Truman didn't particularly touch on was that maybe the people who are pushing for these ideas of, of autonomy aren't really operating in good faith. I mean, the idea of autonomy inherently must uh, restrict your ability to choose certain points of view that are deemed oppressive, right? It's a self, like, like so it, it, it's a self-defeating point to, to, to advocate for autonomy must be to advocate to restrict the choices that some people can make. And the only way you really get out of that, unless you take like a perfectly consistent hardline extreme approach, which is very rare. Um, Such as Peter is, Singer. In, yeah, just Peter Singer. Try not to say his name again, but... Uh, Only Peter Singer. Uh, Look, say yeah. three times and he'll appear, so be careful. Hey, he's closer to me than any of you guys, so just uh, watch out. Um, but... Sorry, sorry I'm, I'm just imagining 11-month-olds looking in a mirror saying, Peter Singer, Peter Singer, Peter Singer. Because <laughs> <laughs> before that one month... Most before that one year mark, you're you're still on the table. You know there is there yeah. is nothing stopping your parents. You are a de- you are a wholly dependent creature, and at 13 months, you're completely independent and can make your own choices. Right, Brevin? That is exactly how that works. Good. Spoken, spoken of a true, or at least that's what I'm sent her to the coal mines. mines. So I mean, I think it's working. Oh, I, I haven't yeah. heard from her in a while. The children yearn for the mines. We all know this. That's like. What's that from? Is is is, is, is that just a tweet? A tweet about <laughs> that's a tweet about Minecraft. <laughs> Children years of mine. <laughs> okay, you click myself. Sorry. Um, listen, that was a lot of scotch. That's all I'm saying. Um, you know, unless you're willing to take a Peter Singer approach, you kind of have to be speaking like in bad faith and just knowing that everybody else is bought in on your conclusions. Of what the of what liberation looks like, that's that that's what's necessary in order to hang on to it, and maybe that conclusion must be a pagan one. See the article transition. That's it. That's um, a great transition. Uh, I mean, just to wrap all that up, my conclusion is that good things are good, bad things are bad, and we should lock up the morons. Uh, but anyway, on to the paganism thing. Great. Yeah, so this is an article uh, discovered in First Things. I was trying to find an article over the last couple of days and was reading First Things, and this one seemed interesting. Uh, I had not reread the chapters that we were doing this week and did not know the article basically summarized those chapters. So I'll go through the article rather quickly. It is um, called We Are Repaganizing by Luis Perry. Uh, so the core premise of this article is exactly what the title says. We are becoming pagan again. Uh, fascinating part about the author is Luis Perry is actually not Christian. She is self-proclaimed agnostic, can't get behind the faith um, or the, the uh, supernatural claims of Christianity. But she is very interested in how it has impacted uh, modern culture. And I... Oh, here it is. Cut that pause out while I hold the article. Uh, she's the author of The Case Against the Secular Revolution. Or, sorry. She's the, she's the author of The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, which I've heard of this book before, but I'm more compelled to read it after reading her article. Basically makes a secular argument for why the sexual revolution was a bad thing. Uh, her article starts off by talking about how infanticide in ancient cultures was incredibly common. Um, especially surrounding brothels in a really disturbing and tragic note. Uh, And she makes a subtle connection to abortion, which is a modern replacement in her eyes. Uh, She notices the connection is incredibly unpopular, uh, but is quite historically sound. And she looks back historically to show that Christians were actually some of the first people to pioneer laws against infanticide in the fourth century after uh, gaining the Roman, uh, gaining control of the Roman government. Uh, fast, forward the, fast forward to modern times. T.S. Eliot is writing in 1939 that Western civilization can either continue along the Christian path or adopt modern paganism. What does this paganism mean? We usually associate it with um, worshiping of the pantheon of gods, superstition, uh, weird temples and rituals. But uh, the author Stephen Smith actually argues that paganism never fully went away. Paganism is 
was present even in early Christianity for centuries, uh, both out of the memory and love of beauty and these ancient traditions and our connection to the earth, but also it was maintained out of spite for uh, Christian suppression that basically took over the the um, ancient Mediterranean. Uh, paganism, in, in Perry's eyes, is ultimately defined as an orientation towards the imminent. Um, it's a fixation on our current position, our relation to the world, and it is inherently physical. Uh, the interesting thing is that Christianity, instead of entirely doing away with this paganism, as you would see in, um, as you saw in, for example, the Old Testament with uh, the Hebrew God, uh, completely transcending the pagan gods and doing away with them entirely. Uh, and in, in the very structure of the Old Testament, uh, completely suppressing all signs of paganism, Christianity incorporated it, where they took the pantheon and replaced it with the heavenly cloud of witnesses. Um, they took on all the pagan seasons, the pagan calendar, and turned it Christian. All the pagan holidays became Christian holidays. It was entirely incorporated into Christianity. It didn't seek to replace paganism, but rather blend with it, and then turn key aspects upside down. The weak becoming strong. Uh, blessed are the weak, right? All these ideas that are um, that are popular, these ideas in Christianity exalting the weak, while paganism exalted the strong. Paganism gave a very rational explanation for what we saw in front of us, that the strong are strong because they must be doing something right, and therefore they have authority over the weak. Now, this Christian focus on weakness took a millennium to develop, uh, looking at Tom Holland's Dominion, which has been recommended to me over the last two months by three separate friends. So maybe that's a possible next book to look at, um, which looks over um, the Christian developments uh, and transformations in the world over its first few centuries. One place you can see this is in Christian iconography, where in the early depiction, well, first of all, there was a initial hesitance to depict the crucifixion at all. You'd see the cross, the sign of the cross was common, obviously the Eucharist was held in high regard, but depictions of the crucifixion itself were still seen as so humiliating that they couldn't show it. Eventually icons, such as those that you actually currently see in Orthodox churches, uh, Stephen, show Christ more at peace or at rest, uh, accepting this uh, punishment, but not really suffering through it. Later on, only about a century after, or century, about a thousand years after Christ's death, you saw the actual suffering Christ and the complete um, empathy with weakness. Ultimately, quote, uh, built into the fabric of the religion was a love of the weak that could not help but slowly and falteringly work against the strong. Christians were not unique in owing, in owning slaves, for instance, but they were unique in eventually banning slavery, something that no other civilization had ever done before. And modern secular feminists, familiar only with the caricature of Puritanism prevent, presented in Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, wholly underestimate the emancipatory effort that Christianity had on women, end quote. I, I love Perry's take here because it takes a very sober-minded view of what Christianity did and what it was slow to do. Um, it wasn't perfect, but it was quite revolutionary in its exalting of the weak, of slavery, of freeing slaves, of um, exalting women far above any other ethical systems you saw at the time. And all these are connected together. Uh, she looks to Connor Fitzgerald's analogy of the necklace, uh, where Christianity is an ethical system. Each precept is, is a bead on a, string, on, a, on a string forming a necklace, and you can't take one bead without picking up all the rest of them. A beautiful analogy for Christian ethics. Um, she then finishes out by talking about the modernists. Uh, she points out how the modern modern ethicists, ethicists are not evil people, per se, but rather they just don't want society to remain Christian, and looks to Peter Singer and his advocacy for infanticide, pointing out how, in, in, in a conversation with Harriet McBride Johnson, um, a disabled ethicist, uh, he's very pleasant with her, even as they have a conversation where he sets out the argument for why her parents should have had the rights and even possibly the duty, it's unclear, to have killed her as an infant. Um, ultimately, I, we see that, that once you drop or, or are distinctly fighting against this Christian idea, 
you're left with just the imminent and left with making these, I would say, terrible choices. This ultimately leads to something we've talked about extensively on this podcast before and we'll probably continue to talk about, um, which is made in Canada. Um, and we see that expanding at an, a rapid rate. She summarizes everything that we said before, but basically the move from terminally ill patients to suffering patients to perceived suffering patients and, and mental health conditions to um, mature minors, and now uh, possibly to infants. Uh, so the main question I have about this article is, I mean, we, we can talk more about the modern ethic, about Peter Singer, about you know the replacement of Christianity, but I was more interested in her characterization of paganism. Uh, she closes with a quote, again, from Stephen Smith, who says, quote, that paganism has has not needed to be reinvented. In a certain sense, the Western world has arguably always remained more pagan than Christian. In some ways, Christianity has been more of a veneer than a substantial reality, end quote. I'm curious what your guys' takes are on that quote, whether that's true or whether Christianity has a little bit more to bring to the table than just a veneer um, putting paganism in, in um, guide rails. Thoughts? Well, as an actual believer in Christianity, yes, I would say that there is more more to it than just the utility of keeping paganism behind bars. But I mean, yeah, I it's funny. I, I, I flashed back to my personal Vietnam of being on our Christianity for a couple of years. And Reddit really is just filled with a bunch of asinine people who like arguing. And it's it's funny because ever so often the moral argument would be trotted out against people who are atheists and like the, the legitimate question of like, look, where do you get your moral framework? And it was always laughed off. It was always just kind of sloughed off as this like, well, of course I'm a moral person. I, I've asked a number of atheists, like, look, I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm not saying that you can't do good things. I'm asking, what is your moral foundation other than it just feels nice to give $5 to a homeless person or, or what have you. And it's always just kind of danced around. It's never actually pinned down. And this strikes me as kind of the logical conclusion. That, yes, I as long as it just, I mean, McIntyre's motive, or not his motive, emotivism, um, but his discussion on whatever the circle was in 1914, 1917, 19-something or other. The Bloomsbury Circle. Ah, uh, the Bloomsbury Circle, thank you. That strikes me as kind of the natural conclusion, at best, actually. like At, at best, we just kind of get this vague, well, you should feel nice about things, but how long until even that? starts taking a rather twisted turn. I'm sure serial killers feel nice about many things. I don't really want them using that as a heuristic. Yeah, I, I the things about, uh, I mean, just as a overarching point, so many points of this article, uh, without Sam's realizing, link in so very well with our chapters. Um, but the things I think that were most interesting is, one, the idea that paganism is sort of this underlying moral framework or reality, just sort of like a default setting, almost, where the rich and the powerful are there because they deserve it. The moral frameworks that exist are to monitor and control relationships in between those rich and powerful people who already have some recourse for violence. It's almost just like a peacemaking mechanism among people so that they don't all wipe each other out. Uh, the article talks at, at length about how, for example, rape of women who did not fall into the you know proper class level with you know powerful enough relatives that they could take vengeance for them, they just were not even a subject of consideration for philosophers. Like it's not you know actually sexual assault unless it's of someone who has the potential to fight back. Essentially, that power you know really truly might makes right. Paganism is the natural world personified into a quote-unquote moral order, and Christianity, as she highlights as a non-Christian herself, is this radical, strange upending of all of that, wherein weakness is strength, wherein the poor and the least among us are uplifted, uh, and that that has you know had a, a profound influence on uh, the West as like a geographic entity, but then also as the world as a whole. And there is this very, this very interesting risk as you start to highlight things like autonomy uh, that this paganism can, like, if that's the default that never went away, starts to reassert itself. Uh, that's not necessarily a world that many of us 
want to live in or anticipated it would even be possible to live in. I'm curious, did either of you see The Northman? It came out, I think, about a year and a half ago or so. Yeah. So I remember seeing it and left with very confused feelings and on the whole, couldn't st- like it, I thought it was disgusting and was talking with my roommate about it. And he pointed out that, no, it was brilliant. It, and I eventually came to agree with him. It was brilliant because it told a purely pagan story with pagan morals, with pagan ideals, pagan heroes. The hero went through and did all sorts of repulsive stuff. He's in the middle of a town being slaughtered, and he is taking part in the slaughter and the rape and the burning and everything. He goes through on a vengeance quest that is purely nihilistic and awful and depressing and ends up dying at Ragnarok. Um, it is very much a Norse mythology. It is very much a pagan mythology. And I think the brilliance of that film was that it showed how accurate the pagan worldview is. And it does kind of frighten me that that is kind of lurking underneath the seams and that it actually is very easy to see a society like that. Like, it, it, it can. It has existed. And just because it stopped existing a while ago doesn't mean it won't reemerge. I'm stealing this somewhat, but the... Most interesting things about the Northman are the first, just that the past is a different country. But specifically, I think the pagan past is a different country. That's just so outside our concepts of a moral framework about how that could work. We cannot understand what it is to be in that kind of mindset. And while our own past, and by our own, I mean our own Christian philosophic Uh, traditions that past is also a foreign country the difference is is that within that within those foreign countries there is a steady stream of people who have worked very hard to try to communicate up and down that ladder of history to maintain certain concepts to build on certain concepts to you know refine and continuously reinforce things like the strange you know, completely ahistorical, kind of out of nowhere Christian insistence that all babies born, or all babies, but but, but especially all babies born, are worthy of life. That is not a concept that exists everywhere in the world, maybe even anywhere in the world. That's not a development of a particular locale. Most uh, places, as as this article cites, had some form of, you know, when you need to cull the herd, you cull the herd. But the Christian idea is radically different than that. And we've had well, a tradition. It's not a, it's not a self-evident point, right? What's self-evident is our immediate situations and our relationship to nature, right? As as um as beings that have desires and wants, and the idea that yeah, I mean, and everything else in nature, right? We have to cull from time to time, and it's just it it. it I like how she points out how it's not really that self-evident. I mean, I I and I'm saying this is I heard several lectures last week. Um, papers delivered, I should say, of uh, Christian ethicists who are talking about how actually like the sanctity of life is um, very self-evident in nature because we're all dependent. It it proves our dependence and up and down, we're all dependent on each other and on our families and on eventually our children. Um, And I think that like theologically, you can make that point, but I don't think it's as a priori as the the scholars thought it was. Um, Yeah. Anyway, sorry, just wanted to hop in with that. No, no, I, I, I think that's that's very true, and sort of that. But to go back to the the tradition of people maintaining this conversation, that is then where when you go back to Truman and when and where language is being undermined and changed, but with the same framing, but the content is erased. That's where the conversation starts to break down, and that's where paganism can start to reassert itself. Um, expressive individualism, uh, you know maybe not even that different from just, you know, finding your own patron war god or wolf god or whatever and just, you know, going into a frenetic trance and murdering all of your enemies. Like, that sounds pretty expressive, maybe even pretty individualistic uh, if the concept of the individual existed at all in the Northman. But um, anyway, fantastic parallels uh, all around. Anything else, Stephen, on this? Nope, I think that was about it. Great. Uh, well, when you decide to go into a blood frenzy and murder your enemies, it might be because you were mad about something that you should have just ranted about. Uh, so let's get right into those. Uh, Sam, I believe you saw a certain band and were struck uh, by a certain something. 
I was struck by a certain something, but it was not any kind of rage. This is one of my many happy rants. Uh, and I think I gave this same happy rant about four years ago when I saw this band last. Uh, last night, I had the pleasure of seeing one of my favorite bands, Death Cab for Cutie, at Madison Square Garden. And it was a delightful performance. Not only did they play um, only uh, trans- the album uh, Transatlanticism, their 2003 masterpiece, from start to finish, and leave us needing nothing else. Um, but they were merely the opener for an even greater act, their side, their own side project from two, from also 2003, the Postal Service. So overall, an amazing evening. And uh, as we're coming into fall times, if you're looking for the perfect uh, fall time album I, or album pairing, I can't think of anything better than these two pieces, which are great. So if you're looking for music, look up Transatlanticism, Death Camp for Cutie, Give Up by the Postal Service. Listen through them. They're both great pieces of Seattle music. Um, and I, I, if we're trying to be philosophical about this, I guess what I love most about those albums, as you um, guys are listening to them and trying to figure out what I like about these all these um, breakup songs, basically, is that they keep, they are like tragically sad albums. I mean, just devastating. Um, but there is there is some element of both recognizing like the uh, the ridiculousness of um, our hope in relationships and in love, but also like the beauty in that and the fact that we can hope for uh, for actual like acceptance and companionship. Anyway, they're just really beautiful albums. Go listen to them. It was a great show. I'm still on cloud nine from that. So that's about all. Well, maybe I will take you up on that. Uh, But as for my rant, I am in the midst and currently resisting just the wee bit of certification fever. So this past past Wednesday, I successfully passed a four-hour, 180-question exam. If you Google that, you'll figure out which one it was. And I passed it. I did it. It was the result of, you know... Uh, several years of work on my part and then two months or so of studying. Great to pass. Felt fantastic. And as soon as I got out of the Pearson View Testing Center, I immediately thought, all right, what can I take next? And I had to say, wait, no, that's not the point. You don't get certifications. You get experience. You actually learn how to do things. You don't just pass tests. But man, oh, it's just, it, 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 it's there now. It's, it's the great feeling uh, that school used to bring. And now that I'm past school, at least for the time being, certifications are these little nuggets, these these little treats that you get to put some letters behind your name on your resume. You, you get to say, I'm certified in X, I'm certified in Y, and it is a dangerous thing. So just a word of warning to all of those out there looking to get certified in anything or the other. It is a dangerous, uh, a, it is a dangerous beast and one that you must keep tamed. Uh, because there are infinite letters that you can put after the comma, after your name, uh, and it's hard to avoid getting them. Steven, what's your rant? Well, speaking of education and letters and certifications, uh, I have resumed my studies, and I am back in school, and I'm convinced that I've given you this rant before, but you're going to get it again, so here we go. Classes can be difficult. Math classes can be difficult. So can physics classes, and I am dead convinced that the reason so many people hate math and physics and chemistry and all these kind of sort of quote-unquote more hard science slash math classes is that you have lazy teachers who are lecturing lazily in that they have a few pre-prepared slides, they, they blast through them as fast as possible, leaving no time for anyone to write anything down or reason through anything. You just get these very opaque equations that turn into new equations that eventually you just shrug and say, well, I guess I plug in these variables and I plug in chug and I get the right answer. And that's what my homework is. And so now, great, I got an A. Okay, I guess I'm certified that I now know plasmas. No clue what's going on behind the scenes. No clue how these actually work, but I sure did pass that homework assignment or I sure did pass that exam. And it drives me nuts because especially as someone in grad school, I actually, you know, would like to understand all of this stuff. And I would actually like to understand what's going on behind the scenes rather than just plug in these variables and call it a day. And I've had so many of these classes with professors who just scroll through their notes on a PDF file and like make a few half-hearted, you know, Microsoft Paints drawing with their mouse notes to underline or to like add a really sloppy word 
and then just keep scrolling before I can even write anything down. And it is frustrating beyond comprehension that this is a very common phenomenon. Ah, it's awful. Every math class I've had where people have, or the, the professor has written on the chalkboard or the whiteboard, like written out everything. Oh, it sinks. Oh, it's so understandable. Every class I have with the PowerPoint deck, I want to report them for teaching malpractice. So if you are a teacher out there, please just use the whiteboard. All right. And on that note, I think we are done for today. So for everyone here at the Problem with Reading Podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And uh, get out there and get pagan. Or use a chalkboard.